and welcome to Cond, a podcast all about cheats, liars and con artists. I'm Michael. And I'm Amy. This week we examine a guy who was desperate to get rich by any means possible. He started a legitimate business but used it to commit a massive fraud. It's a con that will no doubt emerge again throughout our episodes, so we should probably start with the guy who the con is named after. He wasn't the first person to commit this fraud, but certainly the most prolific, and the reason why the con is now called the Ponzi Scheme. This is Charles Ponzi. Charles Ponzi was born on the 3rd of March 1882 in Lugo, in Italy. Historically, his family had been very wealthy, but in Ponzi's early years, his family fell on hard times and found themselves struggling financially. Charles was a thief and stole pretty much anything he could get his hands on, even stealing from the church collection plate. However, he wasn't very good at it and was regularly caught leaving his family to bail him out. His first job was as a postman, which he did for years before being accepted into the University of Rome La Sapienza. At university, Ponzi socialised with people far richer than him, who treated university as an extended holiday. Socialising in these circles meant Ponzi very quickly ran out of money. Four years later, he was totally broke and without a degree. Around this time, it had become fairly common for Italians to migrate to the USA. Uh, those who returned seemed to come back much richer than when they left. Charles Ponzi's family were pretty fed up of him as well in his petty crime, so encouraged him to do the same, partly just to get rid of him. Charles set sail, thinking his adventure to the States would allow him to return his family's reputation and wealth to their former glory. His family had a whip round to fund his adventure, and in November 1903, Charles Ponzi left for the States with $200 in his pocket. He was always tempted by any opportunity to get rich quick, so gambled his money whilst on board the ship, thinking he could easily double his $200. However, there were better card players on board the boat and when he finally arrived in America, he had just $2.50 left. He would later tell the New York Times, I landed in this country with $2.50 in cash and $1 million in hopes and those hopes never left me. He's a very optimistic person, isn't he? Quite poetic. Also a bloody idiot. Who could, who, like, I know the problem with gambling is you always think, oh, one more go and I'll win it all back. But to go from $200 to literally having $2.50 left. $200 back then would have been loads of money as Quite well. Quite a lot of money. I suppose that was him setting his life up. And you think when you've got like $10 left, you might stop. $2. It ain't going to get you anywhere, is it? On arrival, Charles quickly learned English as best he could and took whatever odd cash-in-hand jobs he could find. His first proper job was as a pot washer in a restaurant where he also slept on the floor. At that restaurant, he worked his way up to the position of waiter, but was eventually fired for shortchanging customers and having his hand in the till. He was allowed to sleep on the floor. Is that a thing? Like, do many jobs, like, if you've got nowhere to stay, don't, oh, just don't worry, don't bother going home, just keep, just keep here, it's fine. I'm not sure, but, like, sometimes, like, when you're travelling, like, if you, like, do a bit of cleaning at the hostel, you get a room, but I think that does include a bed. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Just, oh, he's, he's never leaving this job. Does seem a bit ridiculous, but okay. In 1907, Ponzi moved to Canada and got a job in a small bank in Montreal. 
banking regulations were fairly lax in Canada at the time, so few qualifications or legal requirements were needed to get a job. Ponzi was fairly good with numbers, so got a job as an assistant teller. Ponzi was able to see the accounts for the bank and realised that the bank had offered some bad loans on property and was in serious trouble. Ponzi spotted an opportunity to take over the bank and figured this could be his opportunity to get rich quick. However, at the same time, he happened to be draining the account of one of the bank's customers by forging their signatures on cheques. Charles Ponzi was quickly convicted of fraud and jailed in Canada. So we're starting to get an idea of what this guy's like. He's a, a bit of a charlatan, basically just wants to get rich quick, doesn't he? Of course, now in prison, he didn't want to bring shame upon his family. So rather than tell them the true story, he wrote a letter to his mum telling her that he got a special job in a prison for three years. What sort of job would that be? He's got hi mum, uh, just so you know, not, you won't hear from me for three years because I'm doing a special project that just so happens to be in a prison. And at no point did she go... Are you actually in prison? It's so far-fetched. Yeah, maybe it's like the unknown. So then maybe they kind of thought maybe something like MI5, but in prisons, I don't know. Yeah. Also, he's worried about bringing shame on his family. Earlier, he was stealing from the church collection plate. Surely that's going to be like the primary source of shame, I would have thought. Once released, he decided to head back to the States. Again, he spotted another opportunity to get rich by helping to smuggle illegal immigrants across the border. And again, he got caught. Back to prison. He's not the best criminal, is he? No, he's, he's useless. Primarily, he's just a bit useless. Well, it's like previous stories we've told. I've actually, I've actually been quite impressed by some of the things that made, you know, some of the stunts they've managed to pull. Him, I mean... You got another try, haven't you? He's trying, but getting caught with everything he's trying. Yeah, he's useless. Next, Ponzi headed to Boston, where he began working his way up at an import export firm. He also got married to a fellow Italian, Rose Necco. It was while he was working at the firm that he landed upon the idea for his business. He received a letter from somebody in Spain, and alongside the letter, he spotted his next big opportunity to get rich quick. He received a letter that included an international reply coupon. An international reply coupon. Yes, it is as dull as it sounds. What it is, when sending a letter overseas, you could include an international reply coupon and this could be traded for stamps in any country. So if I were to send you a letter, I could cover the cost of your postage back to me by including an international reply coupon. You with me so far? So how did Ponzi think this could make him rich? Well, basically, you could buy a coupon in Europe, post it to the States, cash it in in the States for stamps, and then sell the stamps for more dollars than the original European currency that you used to buy the coupon. Thanks, basically, to exchange rates. And Ponzi was able to make a 400% profit on each coupon he bought and sold. I'd never heard this word before researching this episode, but for any economics fans listening, you'll recognise this as arbitrage, which is buying or selling an asset to profit from an imbalance in the price. Different markets charge different prices for the same thing. This is totally legal, by the way. This is not a con. He's just spotted an opportunity. Well done, him. He's still awake at the back? Good. So he had a great business idea. He had also a winning smile and began spreading the word of his genius opportunity. 
No surprise, people loved the idea and Ponzi allowed anyone who was interested to invest in trading the coupons. Ponzi promised investors a 50% return on their money in 45 days, or he would double their money in three months. That is a pretty good investment. So you can get, you can pay him some money and he'll double it in three months. Like if that existed today, I would absolutely invest in that. Yeah, 100% winner, winner. In November 1919, Ponzi set up in a very cramped, dingy office in Massachusetts and opened the Securities Exchange Company. However, at the time, he had no money to buy furniture for the office, so a local furniture dealer gave him the furniture on loan. Ponzi was renting the furniture initially for free. With the furniture dealer relying on the success of Ponzi's business to receive payment, he had promised very high returns on investment to those who had invested, and he delivered. So people are giving him money, and he's doubled it in three months. If that was you, if you'd given him like 50 quid, say, and three months later he gave you 100 quid, what would you do next? I'd just keep investing, really, because it seemed like simple. Yeah, absolutely. So you'd, give him, you'd let him hold on to the money, which is, that is what most people did. Yeah, because I'd trust him. I'd be getting a bit of dollar back, so I'd just keep doing it. Exactly, yeah. And that's what people did. What else would you do? Um, probably gloat about it to all yeah. my pals. <laughs> exactly, that's what people did. So very quickly, news spread of this. And before long, people are giving him his money. They're not asking for money back. And he's just getting more and more money from more and more people. People flocked to invest. By March, he had over 100 separate investors on his books, including his wife, who had given Ponzi $800 to work his magic on. Each investor would receive a note in exchange for their money. On the note was the promise of repayment, with interest in 45 or 90 days. Ponzi even had to hire sales staff to manage the investments and paid them a 10% commission for each dollar they brought in from an investor. The major problem was Ponzi just couldn't get anywhere near enough money out of postal coupons to pay everyone back. His genius idea just didn't work. When his business first started and he had $1,800 worth of investment, it would have taken 53,000 postal coupons to properly pay them all back. With the current number of investors, he would have needed enough coupons to fill football stadiums many times over, and there was just no way to buy that many, let alone transport them to the States. Luckily for Ponzi though, in the short term at least, hardly any investors ever asked for their money back. Most simply left their money with Ponzi, allowing him to double it again, simply swapping for a new note every few months. So for Ponzi, this is just sheer greed, really. I think that's what's happened. Like, if he'd have just done this himself, he could have made himself a nice little business, I suspect. If he'd have got his family in Italy to buy the coupons, post them to him, he could have sold them in, in the States. He could have made a nice bit of money, probably. Yeah, he's just kind of bit off more than he can chew. Absolutely. By letting anyone have a piece of the action, suddenly he now can't do it. I think it's like the adrenaline's maybe got to him and he thinks he's Billy Big Bollocks, doesn't he? He does, and people are waving dollar notes in his face and he probably thinks it's the greatest thing ever, but he can't pay anyone back. By May, investments were up to a staggering $422,000 and Ponzi used this money to launch his next scheme. Ponzi wanted his own bank. Of course he did. Charles started putting all of his business investments into a single account at one bank. He then told the bank that they should make him head of the bank. <laughs> if 
they refused, he would withdraw all of his money at once and the bank would collapse. So, of course, the bank agreed. I mean, again, it's just confidence, isn't it? It's just, I mean, you couldn't make that up, could you? So he's obviously just convinced them that that's the right thing to do. But I suppose they have a lot of choice. If they, if he takes all of his money out and the bank, the bank's going to collapse because he's got such a big account with them. Well, I don't know what other options they had. It's a bit like Northern Rock. Do you remember Northern Rock a few years ago? People were queuing up down the street to try and get all their money out and the, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. that bank collapsed for a number of reasons, but partly because everyone wanted their money back and no bank has got enough money to pay everyone if everyone asks for their money back at the same time. But he is only one man. It's insane, isn't it? I know. And now he's in charge of a bank. So money was still pouring into Ponzi's security exchange company. Every dollar he received as investment made him richer, but also got him further and further into debt. So what is the fraud here? And how come none of the investors noticed the business was a scam? Well, if an investor wanted their money back, Ponzi paid them. He had loads of money, so it wasn't a problem. However, he was not paying them back with returns from trading postal coupons, as they believed. He was paying them back using investor money from other investors, robbing Peter to pay Paul. The business didn't really exist, yet it was offering investments to everyone and anyone. The fraud would come to be known as a Ponzi scheme. Six months ago, Ponzi was broke. Now Ponzi was super rich and idolized around town, often being greeted by cheers wherever he went. He bought a mansion in Boston and installed central heating, which was extremely lavish in the 1920s. He built a heated swimming pool, spent 500 grand on furniture. He also bought the shipping firm that he used to work for just so that he could fire his old boss, who he hated. Yes, Ponzi. <laughs> that is everyone's dream, isn't it? Everyone at some point just thought, I would love to own this company just so I can get rid of that knobhead. That would be like the thing that most people would want to do, wouldn't he? He's taking one from the team there. That, he's it? living everybody's dream. What an absolute lad. Firing the boss. Well played. The success so far had relied on Ponzi's charm and confidence. Investors loved Ponzi as he was, on paper, doubling their money every three months. However, the tide was about to turn for him. Remember the furniture dealer who loaned Ponzi the furniture to start his business? He believed that his early investment to help Ponzi start his business made him a partner and he wanted his share of Ponzi's success. He decided to sue Ponzi for $1.5 million. His argument was that if Ponzi's business is so successful, why is he in a dingy office on loaned furniture? The furniture dealer's lawsuit was brought about probably more by jealousy than anything else, but it did dent the confidence of a number of Ponzi's investors who all of a sudden wanted their money back. The only way Ponzi could reassure investors and restore confidence was to quickly pay anyone who wanted to withdraw. And this is what he did. At one point, he was paying hundreds of thousands of dollars a day to investors whilst remaining adamant it wasn't damaging him or the business at all. It did stop investors from pulling out, but it also attracted attention from the press as well as banks and financial institutions. Surely, it was all too good to be true. The government began to investigate Ponzi's business, but Ponzi's record keeping wasn't great and going through the accounts and paperwork proved difficult. 
Ponzi complied completely with the government and even volunteered to stop taking on new investors whilst the audit was ongoing. He was still paying out, of course, but was happy to take the hit to ensure the government were happy or was above board. His willingness to cooperate and apparent transparency certainly won over the investigators. This is a classic con man trick, isn't it? It's just sheer swagger. He's holding his hands up and going, yeah, yeah, come and investigate. If you're not if you're not uncomfortable with something, come and check me out. It just shows like how powerful confidence is. So it's like, if you're like, yeah, I can do this. People are like, yeah, you can do this. I'm uh, like, absolutely. People, he's winning people over just by being ballsy. Yeah, like, yeah. People believe in him because he's just Billy Big Balls again, isn't he? The media attention had a lot of people questioning the business and a journalist had estimated that for Ponzi's coupon trade to work on this scale, he would need to have bought over 160 million coupons where there were actually less than 30,000 of them in the whole world. The US Post Office also reported that there had been no large purchases of coupons either in the US or overseas. Investors began to panic. Everyone who had pumped money into the security exchange company was now queuing up to get it back. A riot actually broke out in Boston, resulting in casualties. And yet, Ponzi continued to smile. He went out to greet the crowds and offered them coffee and donuts. He remained calm and insisted there was no problem. He could easily pay back everyone who wanted to leave. Like, what do you actually make of this guy? I don't know. At times I'm thinking, yes, Ponzi. And at other times I think he's just a bit of a twit. We've talked before, haven't we, about how I think of, like con men start to believe their own lie. And I wonder if this is another case of that. Like he's going out going, oh, there's no problem here, officer. Like it's fine. Oh, have you want to withdraw your money? It's a bit of a cue. Have some coffee and donuts. Like he, it's almost like he's so ballsy about it to the point of it being utterly ridiculous. It's like he's took on the role of like a character. Yeah, exactly he has, yeah. By now, it was very clear that the postal coupon thing did not work, yet Ponzi remained totally unfazed. He revealed that the postal coupon idea was merely a cover story and that he would never reveal the real way in which he was doubling investors' money. Many investors believed him and left their money with a security exchange company. Meanwhile, the government audit of his business was ongoing. On the 10th of August 1920, FBI agents descended on the offices of the security exchange company, suspended trading and froze all the assets. Two days later, Ponzi met with his auditors. They told him that he was insolvent and still smiling, Ponzi was arrested. He was indicted with 86 counts of fraud. He owed $15 million. Don't forget, this was in 1920. That is an absurd amount of money. That even now, that is an absurd amount of money. And all that in, we're talking like eight months to go from nothing to $15 million. <laughs> like the, the speed and scale of it is just bizarre. And I mean, I know it's a different currency, but you know, when you speak to your grandparents, they're like, back in my day, £10 could have bought me a house. So imagine actually how much that is. That's an entire town, isn't it, at least? <laughs> Two towns. In November, he pled guilty to using mail to defraud and was sentenced to five years in prison. His sentence would later be extended with him finally being released 14 years later. 
From prison, he wrote to a number of his investors, saying he hoped that recent events wouldn't spoil their Christmas. Some of his investors replied sending him money to invest when he got out of jail. What on earth? Right, right, couple of things. First of all, he's writing to his investors going, oh, sorry, I took all your money and burnt it. Hope that doesn't ruin your Christmas. Like, the cheek of it, right, number one. Number two, people are replying to him and going, oh, don't worry about it, mate. Here's some more money. When you get out of jail, perhaps you could invest this for me. Have they not read the headlines? I don't understand. Do they not get it? I, I, honestly, I think people people believed him. People believed that him being arrested, oh, that must have been... They've, they've got a mistake. The authorities have made a mistake. Like, this guy's an absolute legend. But people still believe that he, he's a genius. But they haven't got their money back. No, they're not bothered. They just want him to, they want to invest more money with him. I am confused. It was later revealed Charles Ponzi had never purchased a single international reply coupon. Charles Ponzi, always looking to get rich quick. He did, and then he got poor pretty quick as well. Proof that if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Unfortunately, Ponzi schemes are not uncommon. There have since been hundreds of similar businesses where new investors pay back the older investors. In fact, it's highly likely that other fraudsters we cover on this podcast will have created similar. And the daddy of them all, Charles Ponzi. We would love to know your thoughts on this and all of our con artists, actually. If you want to say hi, you can get us on Twitter or Instagram. We are at Concast and we will see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.